Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we try to make sense of a week of dramatic swings in the world's capital markets with Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, and Rob Smith, Head of Behavioural Finance. Hello, thank you for joining us. Wow. Um, I guess it's, it's frankly again, the word yeah. that comes to mind for <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah. Um, it's been a bit of a roller coaster in capital markets, hasn't it? It has um, indeed, Nikki. Yeah. So officially, we are now um, at the end of the equity bull market. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen, well, in the US, over 20% fall peak to trough. So it doesn't quite look like it's, it's about over. about 25% last I looked, I think. Right. And, and obviously, anything between this podcast going out and us recording it. Um, but we've obviously seen sort of desperate scenes in Italy and, and many other places. And in the UK, you've seen quite a sort of coordinated, robust response. We saw the central bank move, uh, the 50 basis point cut, um, and obviously government action in, in the budget. Um, so we've got a lot to cover today. Um, so we'll get straight into it. We've got Will obviously to give us a lot of um, updates and information, um, our CIO, but also um, the ever ever comforting Rob Smith, Head of Behavioural Finance. Yeah. Certainly, oh, no pressure yeah, I was going to say, good luck, mate. <laughs> the, the, the voice of calm. Um, of course, I hope you're going to be calm, because if you're not, then yeah, we really trouble, may yes. as well all pack up and go home. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, let's get started with you first. What What's the latest information we have on, on the spread of the latest uh, coronavirus, COVID-19? Yeah, um, so Nikki, I think the first thing, uh, the usual disclaimer, uh, you know, we want to be very careful. We, we are not um, epidemiologists. Um, I have no academic or professional qualifications that would remotely qualify me to talk authoritatively about this. Um, but you, you can know, th- read. This ra- <laughs> but I can read. And I think that's the point. And, and, and we do get access to, and one of the privileges we have in this position is we get access to very good information from genuine experts. Um, and this is what allows us to make kind of genuinely... Um, informed decisions on how, where and how to deploy our client assets um, uh, so that, uh, you know, that our clients uh, kindly entrust to us to, to maximum effect. So anyway, probably the best information we have um, at the moment in terms of the sort of the fatality and reproduction rates um, comes from South Korea. So this is where there's been the most extensive testing. Um, and obviously, a lot of other countries have really struggled on this front. Um, and um, on this evidence, the so-called case fatality rate looks to be about um, 0.6%. So six people in every 1,000 who test positively for COVID-19 sadly die. Now, you could argue that um, because of what the experts call um, the severity bias, that this may still overstate the real fatality rate of, um, of COVID-19. So essentially only people, I mean, you know, you're more likely to go and get tested if you feel the symptoms. And what we yeah. do know about this disease um, is that a majority of the infection with the disease experience very mild kind of cold-like symptoms so you can imagine that this is your kind of upper bound of what we think the fatality rate will eventually prove to be so the point I guess is that um, it's certainly more serious uh, more fatal than seasonal flu and for parts of the population it's a very serious condition on the other hand it is not it's a lot less fatal and transmissible um, than some are suggesting Uh, there are no easy answers um, really but I think the real key here is uh, the difficulty for governments and authorities is how to react, um, how to respond proportionately. And like I say, there's no really easy, easy answers here. But history does suggest that um, any related panic is almost more dangerous here. Um, and this is particularly the case in countries with kind of already um, 
fragile health systems. Yeah, okay. Um, thank you for that. And and Rob, so the reaction that we've seen in the markets and, um, and elsewhere, I mean, is that inevitable given um, everything that Will's just described? I know, I know you've mentioned before the difficulties that we we as people or humans have in dealing with uncertainty generally we prefer to uh, to plan and know um, and so we you know we're instinctively trying to forecast and react to events that we can foresee um, what what are your thoughts on this so i'll just i'll unpack that question a little bit because i think there's two things and i think it's interesting or at least i find it interesting anyway to to look a little bit more broadly at, at kind of the situation we're in and and the sort of the you know, the level of fear, I guess, that, that, that there is around, not just in markets, but, but within people's actions more broadly. So if we look at kind of history and what we see from uh, previous outbreaks of, of kind of new diseases is that they tend to trigger high levels of kind of uncertainty and anxiety. And, so, you know, that's not surprising. You know, the spread of a new pandemic can play on our fears of sort of the unknown and the unfamiliar. And especially as, you know, there is no known cure for the, 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 the fight that we're facing at the moment. Um, the invisibility of, of a virus is actually quite an interesting one because, you know, it's not like a natural disaster where we can kind of see something and it's salient and it makes us easier to kind of rationalise what's going on, but it's, you know, it's invisible. And if you think a lot about, you know, movies and scary movies and how they play on our kind of fears and things, it's not with you know, images of traditionally scary things. It's with, you know, that, the tension, the fear that builds in in not showing a viewer something and, and letting your imagination kind of run wild with that. And that's kind of what we see happening at the moment a lot with the kind of reaction to the to the spread of the virus. And I think one other thing just to touch on before we talk about forecasting is the, the control, the issue around control. So control is something like as human beings we need, it's part of our daily lives. And something like this very much takes away our, our, our control that we feel like we have over a situation because there's just so much, so many unknowns. So it's quite, you know, to some extent quite rational that you see people taking actions that are trying to get some of that control back because we're desperately thinking, you know, oh God, what do I do in this situation? And so things like the panic buying that we see, you know, uh, on, in the, reported in the media is not necessarily like that um, kind of surprising uh, because of that. So if we think about the second part of your question, which is how we try and think about the future and, and, and what effect that has on, on, um, on our uh, kind of reasoning. You know, obviously uncertainty is difficult to kind of deal with. We don't like unknowns. We like to know kind of what's going to happen in the future. The reality is that there's many kind of psychological traps that we fall into when we're trying to think about what, okay, what's the likely path of, of events unfolding. And, you know, if we think about specifically, you know, an event like coronavirus, it's very natural, or I'd say natural, to overweight kind of much more recent kind of news, much more recent kind of information that we've read, because it's easy to recall, right? That makes sense. But the reality is that that's not necessarily telling you the whole picture of, of what's going on. And I think then if you think about, okay, how do we then take that and, and use that to, to create an image of the future? It's very easy just to kind of imagine that current trend going on into the future. Because again, it's mentally, it's very easiest for us to go, okay, well, it's, it was two yesterday, it's four today, it's going to be six tomorrow. Because, you know, anything more complex than that becomes computationally difficult for us to, to kind of do and requires a lot more extra thought. But the problem here is obviously we're using just a very small bit of information to try and draw something out on a, on a process that could be really, really complex. And 
there are plenty of people that are very willing to offer opinions that are not <laughs> not expert so. in the field. Yeah, you yeah, can yeah. you can easily find it on social media. Well, sites. it's amazing. Like a month ago, no one had even heard of epidemiology, and now we've got sort of like just so many <laughs> yeah, experts in the subject. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but thank goodness for them. Um, and Rob, what what are the possible effects of this in terms of how we assess the seriousness of of COVID nineteen? So I think if we look at past epidemics and the way they develop, you know, we can see that there's a general kind of pattern of, of, of how they develop over time and how the cases develop over time. And that tends to, and you know, again, we can see this if now looking at China, who, you know, their daily cases are coming down a lot. They're, they were a lot ahead of the curve, if you like. Um, and you can see that it generally there's a slow kind of start in terms of, you know, there's a, there's a period where cases are popping up one or two here or there. And then over time, you know, that starts to pick up and then you go into sort of an exponential growth phase where suddenly it seems like it's it's doubling overnight. And then at some point, you know, that tails off as, you know, whatever measures are taken or naturally, you know, that 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 the the speed of new cases declines. And eventually, you know, you see that tail off and, and at some point we, we leave the leave that behind. Um, but the interesting thing, if we go back to what I was saying before about kind of extrapolating the, the previous um, sort of history, Obviously, when we're in that early period and, you know, there's not much growth in cases, if we just simply say, OK, well, what's this going to look like going into the future? It's quite common for us to think, OK, well, it's just going to kind of continue on a reasonably slow trajectory. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, suddenly, you know, as these things develop, they can develop pretty quickly. Suddenly we're on that exponential growth curve. And then suddenly if you look and you think about, OK, if we just extrapolate the current trend, we're out further, you know, potentially you're going to overestimate the impact of that because at some point you know we know that cases will tail off we don't necessarily know how long or how soon that will be but the reality is you know and as, as that exponential growth kind of speeds up the more we kind of look to extrapolate out the more we're going to overestimate I guess the impacts of, of what that could be. Mm. And um, we know a lot of the, um, the sort of government action has been around uh, delay and and we'll when it comes to seasonality, because um, clearly, you know, we're, well, there's, there's the first hints of spring, as far as I could tell outside. Um, is there anything we're hearing from the experts on this? I mean, I know other coronaviruses have exhibited this to some degree, but do we expect some drop off in the transmission rates as, as we get closer to summer and, and beyond, hopefully an Indian summer as well? Well, you know, cheer us all that up. would be nice, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, and again, I'm, I'm simply relaying... Um, uh, what I've heard from the genuine experts on this subject. But like you say, um, there are basically uh, four coronaviruses currently in circulation or, or previously in circulation um, that have caused, like all the colds and um, you know and so on, that regularly afflict, afflict all of our winters. Um, now, this latest coronavirus um, uh, and the associated disease, COVID-19, is, is, is an addition to that family of viruses. And there is some sort of thought that, um, you know, that these viruses or coronaviruses should sh- share some sort of seasonality um, pattern. So although we don't have firm evidence yet of seasonality, there is some potential for slower transmission as the northern hemisphere warms. But this potentially will have the reverse effect on the southern hemisphere, just to bear in mind. The other thing, just, uh, you know, as an aside, you didn't ask it, but the you know, on the treatment front, um, you know, we do have the advantage of being able to look at several antiviral drugs that have already been through some degree of testing. So people are talking about one drug called remdesivir um, that was trialed in the fight against Ebola. Um, it wasn't actually that um, successful. It didn't do too well there, but apparently fared better against um, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Um, so there are trials now going ongoing now to see how effective it is against COVID-19. Um, and that's, you know, the results are going to come back pretty quickly. Um, and one 
interesting aspect here is that there is already obviously quite a lot of safety data available from the Ebola trial. So if it is proved to be effective, then we could see production ramped up in the next few months. There are a couple of other candidates too. Um, vaccines will inevitably take much longer, um, even if you are seeing some potential candidates entering phase one trials um, already. And as an aside, sorry to grab the mic, but there was something else that I learned this morning um, that I thought was, uh, or last night that I thought was interesting. And this is particularly um, aimed at my wife. And that is that... <laughs> Man flu is real. Um, so apparently um, the hormonal idiosyncrasies of the uh, genders mean that men uh, tend to have a more exuberant immuno response um, to things like the flu. So I'm not faking it. The more serious point is that what you are finding with this um, disease is that it is uh, affecting men disproportionately as well as the older um, the older older population cohorts, as well as the sort of the more medically vulnerable. So that's just one of the interesting one of the facts. Okay, so so let's move on to the um, the economic effects. Do we have any updated views here? I mean, markets have obviously been moving extremely fast this week. Um, it seems like investors are expecting a much more impactful, longer-lasting economic hitch than um, you know perhaps originally thought based on based on these market moves. What 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 do you think we're seeing here? Yeah, I mean that's that's, that's surely the case, Nikki. Um, I mean there are other factors to throw in here too that we've seen this week. So you've had. Um, there's some added nerves um, that have resulted from the sharp declines in oil prices um, that uh, that we saw earlier in the week. Um, that uh, and again, oil prices, you know, they dropped by a quarter in a in a day, um, pretty much, and that followed on from collapsed talks between OPEC and Russia. And essentially, this this is a kind of um, a market share scrap uh, in the oil complex, and that's fueled worries um, that a default cycle amongst oil companies is coming. Um, I mean, overall, um, the reality is, unfortunately, that there is little that we conf can confidently say um, about um, the economic costs of containing and delaying the spread of the uh, this um, uh, this uh, latest uh, coronavirus. And you know, certainly, there are parts of the services sector that are already suffering uh, from the containment efforts, as you might expect. Um, however, for those looking for um, some some reassurance. Uh, the world economy entered this crisis um, with many of its most important actors in much better health than feared. And we talk about the US consumer a lot, but the US consumers in particular remain in very sound economic health. Um, the other point that we'd make is that policymakers have, uh, particularly with borrowing costs so low, um, they have some capacity to mitigate some of the effects on the world's kind of on some of the worst affected areas, as we're already seeing some evidence of um, this week in the UK. So, you know, our best guess remains um, quite firmly that the world economy will recover um, a bit later in the year. Um, and that suggests that the moves that we're seeing across many of the world's capital markets are significantly overdone. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you mentioned uh, the oil price move that that we've seen. What's what's our expectation? Do we expect Russia and OPEC to continue this punch up? Well, I mean, it's always difficult to say. I mean, the last few years have seen um, a sharp increase in the proportion of um, global oil production accounted for by the US. Um, so essentially, they've been taking market share. Um, and the relevant point here is that the US supply requires a much higher oil price to make it you know, worth digging up 
pumping out of the ground. Um, so by driving the oil price lower, the producers able to profitably operate at a much lower oil price environment may be able to grab back um, some market share. And this obviously has implications for the world economy. Um, there are the stresses in the oil sector um, uh, to consider, um, as well as um, you know some of those actors that have provided finance to those parts of the um, to the to the sector to the more vulnerable parts of the oil sector. Uh, and more broadly, you can argue, and we, we pointed this out, uh, we've, we've, we've talked about this before, but you know, we, we've, we've got a sort of test run of this you know, back in 2014-15 when oil prices dropped so precipitously. And what we found then is that you can look more broadly and more long term and say that you know, lower oil prices, what they do is they redistribute wealth from the few who control the world's, world's oil resources to the many, like us, who use the world's oil resources. And so there is a sort of, there's a positive effect because it tends to be that the few who control the oil's resources tend to have a, what's called a lower marginal propensity to consume. They just save more, they can save more um, versus the kind of, you know, the, 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 the masses who tend to have a higher propensity you know, to, to, to consume. And so what that means is you, you tend to get a demand boost. But in the short run, it can be quite destructive because obviously the very short-term effects it has uh, on the oil sector in particular and sort of oil field um, and oil-related capital expenditure, those tend to come sooner than the kind of wealth effects. So, you know, net-net, it can be short-term negative, long-term positive. Mm. Yeah, and go back to what Rob was saying about, you know, that which we can control. I mean, this is this is so clearly in the hands of other actors. That, it is, that it, it's, is um, it is, yeah, true. It's hard for the market to, to digest. Yeah. Um, so Rob, just coming back to you on, on you know, given the sharp moves that we've seen in markets, I mean, you know, for those of us that are a bit longer in the tooth than maybe some of our colleagues, um, we haven't seen this for a few decades now, right? This kind of market move. So what can we say from behavioral perspective is really driving this this kind of whipsaw action? Yeah. So. I think uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna upset Will a little bit with uh, a bit of a dig at, uh, at efficient markets and, and really how efficient markets are. But I think I, I can take it. Yeah, he'll I mean. just have to write a new textbook. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think if we look at you know what's happened in the markets uh, specifically, you know we see that it actually the the kind of big reaction from the market started on around the 24th of February. The reality is that you know events and cases had already started to develop in in many of the developed economies by that point you know the virus had already spread internationally um and so you could argue that inevitably you know we'd already seen what's happened in china you know there were no necessarily huge surprises in the course of this epidemic just how quick it was going to escalate and the scale of it perhaps there were some questions over but there was no huge surprise that suddenly means that you know it was justified that we see let's say a nine percent fall in in some markets and the reality is that a lot of that is driven by swings in sentiment rather than kind of underlying fundamentals. And it's interesting. And, you know, Will and I talk about this a lot about, you know, how efficient markets are really. And it's actually that probably, you know, in times like this is where you see there are those kind of dislocations and where the behavior, if you like, of the, of the participants really kind of can have a, a material effect and, and, and kind of drive you away from some of the more fundamental uh, sort of rationale behind uh, investing decisions. But I think... When we look at individuals and how they make uh, decisions and how they kind of attach themselves to um, kind of views, we see that we tend to, you know, land on a belief, whether it's kind of valid or not is, is you know, a debate for another day. But, um, you know, and we, the reality is, as new information comes in, we should adjust our views and say, you know what, actually, maybe that belief I had wasn't quite so right. You know, I've, I've seen a new piece of information or, you know, had a, a new discussion. But the reality is it's, 
we're slow to update kind of our beliefs. So generally we hold on to things that may not still be accurate for longer than we should do. And so, you know, what we see is if you're, if you're um, thinking about kind of the investment markets, that until there's sometimes a, a significant impetus to really, that jolts you into kind of updating that belief, then you, you quite often get these periods where, you know, people aren't necessarily updating their views in, in, in the right way. And so suddenly when we get to a point where we realize actually, you know what, we should update our views, a lot of water has got under the bridge and we get these big kind of like jumps in, in the way people are kind of feeling about the markets and the economy. And, and that's obviously going to impact the decision they have of whether to buy and sell. Mm. Okay. And, and any messages you can give to investors that may be listening to this podcast? Sure. So I think, I mean, obviously in an ideal world, everyone wants to, you know, miss the bad periods of investment performance and, and try and, you know, partake in the better ones. That would be a, a lovely place to be. But if you're, you know, right now sitting there as an investor thinking, you know, as, as you know, a lot of us around this table, you know, with the, with the small pots we may have from, uh, from Barclays Pension, you know, what should I do? Should I get out the market? Because actually, is it only inevitable that, you know, we're going to see further falls and then, you know, maybe I can get back in at a later date and kind of avoid the pain of, of, of any further losses. But I think the, the reality is that A, you know, the decision to try and get back in and reinvest is actually a much more difficult one than you might think it is, uh, especially kind of in times like this. And, you know, so you have to ask yourself the question, what, you know, what, what if, you know, too much pessimism has already been baked in? So what if we're near the bottom already, you know? And so actually there's, there's potentially some more upside, you know, in the, in the near term horizon. Then suddenly you see prices go back above where you, where you sold and it becomes difficult then to rationalize getting invested again because you've missed out on some some performance and it's likely that you're probably going to sit there thinking we well, actually no maybe it's a maybe it's a fake rally you know there's more bad news to be priced in and, and guess things what? are more expensive again right well exactly so starting and, point. and and so you know how long do you sit out for and so often we see that either for investors who are kind of invested now or, or perhaps not even invested is that they you know they, they want to wait and they want to wait out the storms but the, the the reality is that you know the whole reason we're here and talking is because these storms are not predictable uh and therefore you know it's very kind of easy to to tell ourselves the stories that make it comfortable to kind of you know get in and get out of the market but the actual reality of being able to do that is is, is a different thing and that human urge to take action any action yes even though sometimes I, just sitting on our hands exactly and i think you know I, mean, I think you're just better off seeing these kind of uh, periodic downturns and they are periodic it's just part of the toll you pay for accessing you know future human productivity it's an unfortunate side effect but it's, it's just part of the toll you know and you can't it's very difficult to avoid them if you if you try and avoid these you tend to forfeit the ability to access the upside and i think you know will's already pointed out you know we you know the effects you know the future of the effects are still quite wildly unknown and so yes you know things could get worse you know we're not i'm not for one minute saying you know things won't get worse before they get better but the reality is you know we know at some point they will start to get better we still believe strongly this is you know this is a temporary kind of effect um and you know we need to make decisions that aren't so much based on you know instinct and, and emotion but but are more rationed reasoned driven by data and lots of great sources from experts as will was saying and you know one of the reasons why you know, we believe in what we do as kind of as investment managers is as, as wealth managers is that, you know, if you employ someone to do that and they have a process and they can be kind of held to that, 
then that's someone be- somewhat better than you know trying to weather the storm on your own. Yeah, and and we certainly make sure that that you're you're on Will's shoulder a lot of the time to, Absolutely. <laughs> to keep me honest to keep him to keep, keep him fixed panicking. on his yeah focus, exactly on his process keep me from either panic or euphoria yeah, yeah. we can't all have a Rob but, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you for that Rob so coming back to you Will is is there anything more that we could see policymakers do I mean have they run out of ammunition or is there anything more that that could come our way it's a good question Nikki I mean I, I, certainly from a monetary policy perspective you could argue that there's a bit of kind of you can lead a horse to water but you can't make it drink um, you know central banks lowering interest rates is not going to make us you know make me want to go out to restaurants or make me want to go to mm. concerts you know if I fear um, or, or if I'm not allowed richer, to. Right, yeah yeah exactly so, so it, in a yeah. sense it's not going to change my consuming behavior in in this kind of next couple of months necessarily but it, the key for policymakers at the moment and you saw a lot of this in that um, you know that coordinated um, action from the UK government and the Bank of England this week which is really you're trying to provide the support to the businesses the areas of you know, corporate UK in particular, and and consumers that are most affected by this. You're trying to buy them time uh, to try and get them through the sort of you know the peak of this um, crisis, which hopefully is you know is a matter of months rather than you know much longer than that. Um, and so what you're doing is you're just allowing them to you know to, to survive and keeping them sort of you know through that period. Um, so that um, so that they can see the other side. Uh, so it is fiscal policy that's more powerful, I think, probably. Government's probably a bit more powerful. Central banks don't have that much room to cut interest rates further. But if things get really much, much worse, then there are still kind of much more extreme policy measures which haven't been tried yet, which can be, dude, I mean, the discussion on helicopter money and stuff like that, mm-hmm. genuine money printing, um, those kinds of things could come to the fore. But uh, uh, at the moment, we're not expecting that kind of extreme. We're just sort of thinking that governments can do a bit more, and that's probably coming. And they need a bit of time to actually see the effects of it as well. I think that's probably right. Yeah, we're still on. in the early days. Yeah. yeah. And and obviously, you know, our long-term allocation is, is designed to try and absorb some of these um, punches that we see. Um, what what are you doing, if anything, in in our sort of short term asset allocation or our portfolio measures? Are, are we are we doing anything at the moment? Well, so I mean, you, you're right on the longer term asset allocation. This is for when you're very grateful for those kind of diversifying assets that we um, have in our strategic asset allocation. It's also time to be thankful for the kind of painstaking efforts of the team. That, that the team put into organizing these assets in the first, most effective way possible to, to mitigate exactly these kinds of, um, these types of markets. However, like you say, on the tactical side of the portfolio, and what I would say is that, you know, to Rob's point, you know, when you're seeing these kind of very emotional reactions to not much new news, I mean, we haven't really seen much new information today of days, and you're seeing these wild, incredible changes in, um, in capital markets, kind of pricing of the future, that is presenting quite a lot of opportunities. And we have built up a store of kind of cash and short maturity bonds in our um, tactical portfolio for just this moment. So we are expecting to kind of, you know, to, to use a bit of that um, in the coming weeks and months just to sort of, you know, to, um, uh, to deploy a bit of that cash a little bit because we think we can get a better return. Now, I mean, just again, and I, I'm sorry I've banged on about this so much, but I would just make the point again that for medium to long-term investors, if you're investing beyond the next few years, remember that you are not trying to, you know, to Rob's point, you're not trying to time recessions, you're not trying to time elections, you're not trying to, you are literally trying to access future human productivity. Now, you know, we have great confidence in that future path of productivity, the attraction of that prize. So in a sense, what you're seeing right now, for those people able to look beyond this, you're not going to find the perfect entry point. 
but the price of the ticket to access that future productivity has just come down in price quite a good deal mm -hmm. in the last couple of days. So that is an, it's a very, very attractive entry point. If you have got cash on the sidelines, you know, looking to deploy for medium term investors, you know, a multi asset class fund or portfolio is a very good option at the moment, I would argue. And, and you mentioned just now about mitigating. I mean, I'm just for clarity purposes, clearly you can't fully mitigate, right? No, no. So this is just about no. dampening. Yeah, no, not yeah. experiencing the full. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you're just you're aiming not to experience the full um, brunt of you know equity market declines in this situation. Or and oil price or, or any yeah, other Yeah, all those kind of things. And you're trying stock. to go across country. Yeah. So you're not trying to expose yourself too much to idiosyncratic you know, political or country risks across the whole piece. And it, it goes back to that thing that we were just talking about now. You know, Experiencing some downside is unfortunately just part of the ticket um, or part of the ticket price, part of the toll um, for accessing all that future human productivity. And what we do know is that, you know, over long periods of time, markets are, you know, because the economy is much more likely to rise than fall, so goes the fate of, you know, diversified, you know, capital markets portfolios. But at times like this, it's a very painful and emotional business. But it's, um, you know, the, the, the benefits of being patient and listening to Rob are probably... And I think just to add to, to Will's points, we talked about you know diversification, and I think it's something that's overlooked a lot is for people just to remember that what they're seeing in the news about financial markets and how poorly they're doing is obviously really reflecting equity markets, which are you know one of the, the riskiest asset in our asset allocation. So actually, if you're well diversified, you know the reality of what's going on in your portfolio versus what you're seeing on the on the on the news can be kind of very different. Now, obviously, yes, your diversified still portfolio will still be in these conditions, you know, uh, down from a performance, performance perspective, but it will be shielded by some of those other assets. So it's important to remember that. And, and of course, people, uh, certainly we would advise people not to be putting 100% of their assets into the markets, right? No, you know, just ev stops, everyone, no, everyone has some cash, everyone has other assets, physical assets, Absolutely, cetera, and I so. think that's the point, is you should be prepared, and that's always the disclaimer, the, the, you know, the compliance department are very hot on this for the right reasons, is that you need to be prepared to lose there is mm -hmm. you know that you can't we can't guarantee the future we never could we never can what we can guarantee is kind of the professionalism and expertise that this wide team that sit on this um, floor kind of can bring to deploying those assets and organizing those assets in the best possible way uh, and taking advantage of whatever opportunities are out there. And I think the reality is that unlike, you know, the toilet paper that everyone's scrambling to uh, to get off the shelves, you know, investors, long-term investors, you know, don't need to use that money in, in the short term. So, you know, you've got to remember that, you know, like Will said, investing is a long-term activity. And the reality is that weathering precisely these sorts of storms is the reason you get, you know, your long-term kind of returns. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much. So um, I'm sure we will be um, covering uh, many more excitements over, over the next few days um, in the next podcast. But uh, thank you very much for joining us. All investments can fall as well as rise in value. And their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.